Welcome to the Leaf by Lantern podcast, a show for Christian artists who want to retell fairy tales in the light of scripture. We'll discuss how to approach retelling a fairy tale according to the truth and beauty of the Bible, from ethical issues to images like rose gardens and dragon hordes. I'm your host, Alicia Pollard. everyone. We are now officially in the holiday season, that twinkling, bustling, festive, frenzied time of year in which a whole year's worth of celebration and stress seem packed in one month. At least that's how it feels to me. Best of luck to everyone else who's trying to line up their Christmas presents and, like me, uh, recovering from colds. Today's fairy tale is one that I found in my book of Scottish fairy tales. It's partly a quest, partly a series of disasters with a hero who can't seem to follow directions to save his own life, a really great animal helper, and a lot of grace. As usual, I'll read the fairy tale out loud and then talk about how you might address some of its images in the light of scripture. In other words, I'll discuss how you can let theological truths, ethical principles, and beautiful mysteries of the Bible guide how you interpret and retell the images of the fairy tale. So I'll talk about the images of the tree with golden apples and a garden at night, one very multi-layered image, the three prizes the hero seeks, and the two treacherous brothers. So here's the fairy tale. The Golden Bird. Once upon a time, a king kept a pleasure garden in his palace. At the center of the garden was a tree that bore golden apples that were the king's delight. When the apples were near ripe, they were counted, and they found one missing. Furious, the king appointed his eldest son to guard the tree that night and catch the thief. The eldest son stayed awake as long as he could, but fell fast asleep, and woke to find another apple missing. The king appointed his second oldest son to guard the tree that night and catch the thief. The second son stayed awake as long as he could, but fell fast asleep, and woke to find yet another apple missing. Reluctantly, as he believed his youngest child to be simple and nearly useless, the king appointed his youngest son to guard the tree that night and catch the thief. The youngest son managed to stay awake a long time and finally glimpsed something coming through the trees, a bird whose feathers shone like finest gold. The bird alighted on the tree and plucked an apple with its beak. The youngest son shot an arrow to try to fell and catch the bird, but it was too quick for him and flew away, leaving a single gleaming feather in the grass. The youngest son brought the feather to his father. The king called all his royal counselors together and all agreed that the feather was worth more than the whole kingdom. The king commanded his eldest son to go and find the bird and bring it to him. The eldest son rode away. On the road, he saw a fox sitting under a tree and prepared to shoot it for sport. Save your powder and shot, cried the fox. I will help you if you spare me. When you come to the next town, you will see a bright inn full of laughter and music and a quiet inn with no merriment. Spend the night in the quiet inn and you'll be well on your way. Spare you, scorned the sun, for such foolish counsel. He shot at the fox. The fox danced nimbly away. The eldest son arrived at the town and saw a bright inn full of laughter and music and a quiet inn with no merriment. He went to the bright inn and amused himself with dancing and drinking and forgot all about his quest so that his father the king never heard from him. The king commanded his second son to go and find the bird and bring it to him. The second son rode away. On the road he saw a fox sitting under a tree and prepared to shoot it for sport. Save your powder and shot, cried the fox. 
I will help you if you spare me. When you come to the next town, you will see a bright inn full of laughter and music, and a quiet inn with no merriment. Spend the night at the quiet inn, and you will be well on your way. Spare you, scorned the second son, for such foolish counsel. He shot at the fox. The fox danced nimbly away. The second son arrived at the town and saw a bright inn full of laughter and music, and a quiet inn with no merriment. He went to the bright inn and amused himself with dancing and drinking, and forgot all about his quest, so that his father the king never heard from him. The youngest son of the king begged to go and find the bird for his father. His father agreed at last, reluctantly, and let him go. The youngest son walked away. On the road, he saw a fox sitting under a tree and prepared to shoot it for sport. Save your powder and shot, cried the fox. I will help you if you spare me. When you come to the next town, you will see a bright inn full of laughter and music and a quiet inn with no merriment. Spend the night at the quiet inn and you will be well on your way. Of course I will spare you, said the youngest son. Climb on my tail and I will carry you, said the fox. The youngest son climbed on the fox's tail and they whisked away. They arrived at the town and saw a bright inn full of laughter and music and a quiet inn with no merriment. He went to the quiet inn and had a peaceful night's sleep and was ready to set out again in the morning with the fox. The youngest son and the fox found the palace where a king kept the golden bird. Listen to me, said the fox. Wait until nightfall and then you can sneak past the sentries and find the bird. You'll find the bird perched between two cages, a gold one and a plain one. Make sure you put the bird in the plain one and you'll have no trouble. The youngest son waited until nightfall, crept past the sentries, and found the bird. When he saw the bird, he thought it a pity to put such a splendid creature in a plain cage. He took the bird and put it in the gold cage. Immediately, the bird let out a great cry. The sentries woke, caught the youngest son, and threw him in the dungeon. In the morning, they brought him before the king to be sentenced. I sentence you to death said the king, but I will spare your life if you bring me the horse with the golden mane who is as swift as the wind. The youngest son set off again, riding on the tail of his friend the fox. They found the palace where a king kept the horse with the golden mane who is as swift as the wind. Listen to me, said the fox. Wait until nightfall, and then you can sneak past the sentries and find the horse. You will find the horse in a stall with two saddles hanging on the wall, a gold one and a plain one. Make sure you put the plain saddle on the horse and you will have no trouble. The youngest son waited until nightfall, crept past the sentries, and found the horse. When he saw the horse, he thought it a pity to put a plain saddle on such a splendid creature. He took the golden saddle and put it on the horse. Immediately, the horse let out a great neigh. The sentries woke, caught the youngest son, and threw him in the dungeon. In the morning, they brought him before the king to be sentenced. I sentence you to death, said the king, but I will spare your life if you bring me the princess who lives in the golden castle. The youngest son set off again, riding on the tail of his friend the fox. They found the golden castle where the princess lived. Listen to me, said the fox. Wait until nightfall, and then you can sneak past the sentries and find the princess as she walks to her bathhouse. Ask her to come with you, and do not listen if she asks that she may only say goodbye to her parents. Then you will have no trouble. The youngest son waited until nightfall, crept past the sentries, and found the princess as she walked to her bathhouse. I will gladly go with you, she said, if only I may say goodbye to my parents. The prince agreed, forgetting the fox's advice. When the princess spoke with her parents, they were furious. They had the palace guards catch the youngest son and throw him in the dungeon. In the morning, they brought him before the king to be sentenced. I will spare your life and give you my daughter, said the king, if you can move this mountain in eight days. 
The youngest son worked very hard to move the mountain for seven days, and at the end of the time was in despair for his life. I will help you, said the fox. The next morning, the mountain had moved from its seat. The princess from the golden castle climbed on the fox's back behind the youngest son, and they ran off together. I will tell you how to keep all you have gained, said the fox. When we come to the castle where lives the horse with the golden mane, bring the princess forward and all will rejoice to see her. They will bring out the horse with the golden mane. Shake hands with everyone and shake the princess's hand last. When you take her hand, pull her onto the horse with you and ride off, and none can follow, for he is swift as the wind. When they arrived at the castle where the horse with the golden mane lived, the youngest son did as the fox had told him. He shook hands with everyone, and when he took the princess's hand, she gladly leaped onto the horse with him, and they rode off swift as the wind. I will tell you how to keep the golden bird as well, said the fox. When we come to the castle where lives the golden bird, leave the princess with me, and I will take care of her. Bring the horse with the golden mane forward, and all will rejoice to see him. When they bring out the golden bird, take its cage in one hand and leap onto the horse and ride off. None can follow you, for he is swift as the wind. When they arrived at the castle where the golden bird lived, the youngest son did as the fox had told him. He brought out the horse with the golden mane, and when they put the cage with the golden bird in his hand, he leaped onto the horse's back and rode off swift as the wind. When the youngest son met the fox and princess in the wood, the fox said, Do me a favor, since I have helped you these many times. Ask anything, said the prince. Shoot me dead, said the fox, and cut off my paws in my head. What a terrible thing to ask. I will not, said the youngest son. Then I must leave you, said the fox, but I will give you two more pieces of advice. Don't buy gallows meat and never sit on the edge of a well. The youngest son rode off with the golden bird, the horse with the golden mane, and the princess from the golden castle. As they passed through a village, they, he saw a crowd around the gallows. What has happened? he asked. Two vagabonds are to be hung, they told him. He looked and saw that the condemned men were his two brothers, who had wasted their money in frivolity and extravagance. Could they be saved? he asked. Yes, if any pay their ransom, said the villagers. But who would ransom these worthless fellows? The prince gladly paid his brother's ransom, and they rode off together. They came to a shady wood, and as they rested for their noonday meal, he sat on the edge of a well. Immediately, his brothers pushed him into the well and rode off with the golden bird, the horse with the golden mane, and the princess from the golden castle. We have brought you not only the golden bird, but this horse and this princess as well, they told their father the king, who received them with honor. But the bird would not sing, the horse would not eat, and the princess only wept. The youngest son had survived his fall into the well, as it was dry with a soft, mossy bottom, but he could not get out. Finally, his friend the fox returned to him. You should have followed my counsel, said the fox, but I will help you. The prince climbed onto the fox's tail, and they leaped out of the well and back to his father's kingdom. When they came to the borders of the kingdom, the fox warned the youngest son. Your brothers have posted sentries all round with orders to kill you if they find you. The youngest son exchanged clothes with a beggar he found by the road and entered the kingdom in disguise. But when he came near, the bird began to sing, the horse began to eat, and the princess stopped crying. The youngest son presented himself before the king. I am the one who found the golden bird, the horse with the golden mane, and the princess from the golden castle, he said. The princess bore witness that he had told the truth, and that the prince's brothers had threatened her if she spoke of it. The prince's brothers were condemned to death for their wickedness. The youngest son married the princess of the golden castle, and they lived happily together. A long time later, the youngest son walked alone in a wood and found his friend the fox. 
Do the favor I asked of you before, pleaded the fox. Shoot me dead and then cut off my paws and my head. Sorrowfully, the prince obeyed. Instantly, the fox turned back into a man. He was the brother of the princess from the golden castle, who had been enchanted by a witch, but was now free. First image, the tree with golden apples in a garden. I love this atmosphere, the, the first scene of the fairy tale, a pleasure garden with a tree of golden apples at night. It's just, it's so rich. The aesthetic of gold gleaming in the dark, of a garden hushed and still and waiting in the night, it's, it's very powerful. I think you can do a lot with it. I usually try to pick one simple image to look into, but for this fairy tale, I'll look at these couple of images in relation to each other. So a special tree, a garden, and gold in scripture. The first association that comes up is obvious. The first garden of scripture is the garden of beginning, the garden of Eden where God placed man. I'll read about Eden from Genesis 2, 8 through 14. For context, God has just spent six days creating the heavens and the earth, and he shaped man from the dust and breathed life into him. So Genesis 2, 8 through 14, ESV. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellum and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. So in this new and perfect world, we have a garden where man is placed with the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river that flows out of Eden splits into four. And that first river, the Pishon, flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. I keep wondering, why are we given these details? Why does this matter? Especially because we don't have Eden anymore and the world is fallen. We, we are very far distant in time and in quality of life from this image. I tried to answer this question by looking through some biblical commentaries, and mostly I found scholars who are trying to pinpoint the exact geographic location of Eden using these rivers, identifying them. And this is fascinating, the historical geographical perspective. But in this particular study, I'm, I'm trying to look for the archetypal and spiritual meanings. To me, I see in this image a river splitting into four, a garden, and one of the rivers encircling a land with gold, bedellum, and onyx stone as, as being what it is, an image of abundance and life and luxury. A garden is a place of cultivated beauty and fruitfulness. A river is a source of living water, providing life. That's consistent throughout scripture, that living water uh, is something God gives. And a land where there are precious metals that are just waiting to be dug up and shaped by human hands. Now, a tree with golden apples from the fairy tale is, is another mystery, another question. As I said, the special trees of Eden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Two trees, two choices, two paths. Adam and Eve picked the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the wrong tree, and 
in that sin, they brought death into the world. And then in Genesis 3, 22 through 20, the Lord God exiles Adam and Eve from the garden. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So again, that was Genesis 3, 22 through 24. Notice how the fairy tale echoes and imitates scripture in some haunting ways. It's very much a tale of choices, like the bright inn or the quiet inn, etc. A tale of loss, a tale of treachery, and a tale of triumph, not by the main character making the right choice, but being rescued repeatedly by grace after making the wrong choice. So to put these images side by side, let scripture's image of Eden, the two trees, the four rivers, be the light that helps us see the fairy tale better. I'm seeing a couple of things an artist could do here in creating a retelling of the tale. First, Eden itself. Eden comes up over and over in art, the, the garden of God, man's first home, the lost paradise, a place of innocence and temptation, a place where sin entered the world. I recently rewatched the 2018 miniseries adaptation of Wilkie Collins' The Woman in White, which is very, very good. The book is very, very good, and that 2018 adaptation is, is just excellent. And I can't remember if the book did this as strongly, but the miniseries definitely emphasized one of the settings, Limeridge House, as an Eden. There's lots of images of innocence and purity and beauty and freedom there. Another example. In Frankenstein, Mary Shelley opens with the frame narrative of ship captain Walden, who hopes to find a lost paradise hidden in the center of the Arctic. So basically, he's, he's trying to discover an Eden. In Susan Gaskell's North and South, the peaceful green setting of the New Forest, which is the South at the title, feels like an Eden compared to the soot and smoke and suffering of the town of Manchester. I also think the garden in The Secret Garden by Frances Hodgson Burnett and the Hundred Acre Wood of the Winnie the Pooh series by A.A. Milne are both Edens. They're places of safety and innocence. Eden comes up again and again, but as an artist, you can weave it into your story in different ways. First, there's a good Eden. This is a hopeful and innocent, safe place where children play, people are at peace with each other. There's feasting, dancing, laughter, and best of all, God and man are in perfect communion. If you're retelling the golden bird, you could take the pleasure garden of the palace in the, in the tale and make it a good Eden. It's a place of order and harmony. And it would make sense for it to be disrupted somehow, and that would be the inciting incident which gets your plot going. But Eden is not just a place of innocence, it's a place of temptation. That first whisper of, did God really say? Other Eden-like images in scripture testified a man's attempt to recreate this paradise in the wrong way, to get back into it even though we were very firmly exiled. For example, Genesis 13.10, Lot's nephew of Abraham gets to choose where he and his family will live. Quote, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chooses this garden-like place, an Eden-like place. He ends up in Sodom. Bad things happen, and he has to be rescued from the city's divine destruction. 
images of luxury, fruitfulness, and abundance uh, are often, or, or at least sometimes, interwoven with images of greed, sensuousness, and debauchery. There is no paradise on earth because uh, mankind chose the forbidden fruit and suffered for it. The only way we can return to the paradise of Eden is through the cross, the Lord Jesus' suffering, and then get to the new Jerusalem at the end of the world. So Revelation 22, 1 through 2. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So we were exiled from Eden, barred from the tree of life, and then through the cross, we get the tree of life back again in a new and better home. So looking at these options, a good Eden, a false Eden, I also see the opportunity for this garden to be a false man-made Eden, a place of beauty and darkness, a gilded cage, a place of corruption. I wondered, as I was reading this, I was, as I was, I was looking at that tree, even thinking, are we supposed to see this tree as the tree of life or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Or maybe not. Maybe it's not meant to be firmly either one or the other. It's kind of meant to remind us of both. But thinking of that, is the king supposed to be good or greedy? Is he the good guardian of a precious thing? Or is he just greedy for gold? I keep going back and forth. Is he a Midas or, or again, a, a good guardian? And I think in a retelling, you could play it either way, depending on the world you're creating, depending on what kind of Eden this is, depending on what else is going on, maybe even what kind of effect these golden apples have. Because there's lots of mythology about golden apples. Um, there's lots of images of immortality, for example, or healing. Um, but the fairy tale doesn't really provide those. They're just a precious thing. But you can you can fill that in in a retelling. So those are some thoughts about how to work with the garden, the tree of golden apples, and uh, a little bit of the night imagery in the beginning. I didn't get into that as much. But depending on what kind of a world you're building, this garden could become more of a true Eden, an innocent place that's full of good secrets, or a false Eden, like Sodom or like Babylon second image the three prizes um, eventually won by the prince so the golden bird the horse with the golden mane and the princess from the golden castle i really really like it when fairy tales set up trios or quartets like this They're, they they can just be really fun looking at these images gave me the chance to do a scriptural word study i've been wanting to do for a while and that is the study of gold as i mentioned before the first scriptural use of the word gold is from that genesis 2 passage the gold of the land of Havilah. And I went through other mentions of gold and found some interesting things. So these, these are a lot, but I was trying to be thorough and I find this really interesting. In general, there are many places in scripture in which silver and gold are used as an example of something precious. No surprise there, they're rare metals. They're worth money and labor, they are desirable. The tabernacle in Exodus and the temple use a lot of gold, 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 gold. The, the mercy seat, the cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, five are made of gold. So the house of the Lord, where the presence of God dwelt among his people Israel, is gilded. Gold is also, unfortunately, a favorite material for idols. Aaron made a golden calf in Exodus 32, very foolishly. Jeroboam made golden calves in 1 Kings 12 to keep the people from going up to Jerusalem after the kingdom split. I think that Ezekiel 7:19 is the best commentary for the use of gold in the making of idols. 
It says, they cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. A lot of the instances of the word gold were associated with Solomon, son of David, king in Jerusalem. I think it's safe to call Solomon's reign the golden age of ancient Israel, not just because he was a king of wisdom and wealth and success, but because he used gold everywhere, in the temple, in his palace, in other palaces all over. Unfortunately, Solomon demonstrated the truth of Deuteronomy 17.17, which was a warning about the then future king of Israel given by Moses. Quote, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest they, his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. The gold of the temple and the palaces was carried off when the southern kingdom fell. So that's described in 2 Kings 24. So Israel lost its glory in military and material ways. Gold is sometimes used as a comparative, something rare and valuable, to set off something even more rare and valuable. For example, Wisdom Personified, who I addressed in an earlier podcast episode, she says in Proverbs 8, 19, my fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. Gold is associated with two highly significant figures in scripture. One is a figure addressed as the king of Tyre in Ezekiel 28, and then there's Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon in the book of Daniel. So first, Ezekiel 28, 13 through 15. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You are on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in all your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So this king of Tyre figure, a cherub who rebelled against God, has marked parallels to the enemy of the world, the deceiver, Satan, especially thinking of Revelation 12 there. Nebuchadnezzar, on the other hand, was the human king of Babylon. In Daniel 2, the prophet Daniel interpreted a dream vision Nebuchadnezzar had of a great statue whose parts represented kingdoms of the earth. And Daniel told him, you are the head of gold. In Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar, perhaps misinterpreting the dream, perhaps not, made a huge statue of himself made of gold and called people to worship it, and he had to repent of that. Uh, wonderful story there. In Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar spent seven years in madness, humbled, because he had tried to set himself up above God, but he repented and was restored as king. So two figures associated with gold, Satan, the enemy, and Nebuchadnezzar, who imitates Satan a couple of times, but repents and is shown the mercy of God. Last in Revelation 21, the city of the New Jerusalem is described as pure gold, like clear glass. In summary, the physical reality of gold as rare, precious, and beautiful signify complex spiritual reality. Gold can represent and stand in for the beauty and glory of God, but when it, it's used for idolatry, when humankind uses it, it becomes a mask for evil. Gold is neutral, but human making can shape it into something glorious or terrible. So back to the fairy tale. Three prizes associated with gold. The golden bird, the horse with the mane of gold, and the princess. These are three things of enormous value, 
the golden bird, which doesn't seem very a practical value, just it's it's beauty, I guess, and maybe material wealth. A horse with a golden mane, kind of a, an image of power, and a princess from a golden castle, who I would say stands for love. Each prize comes with a prohibition that the prince breaks without fail, and each uh, is the fulfillment of a desire. Each is associated with a series of choices, the fine cage or the plain cage, the fancy bridle, excuse me, the fancy saddle or the simple saddle, and saying goodbye to parents or not. I see in this part of the story a chance to build the prince up into a believable complex character by means of desire. What what does he really want here as he's pursuing these golden things? If he wants them just because his father sent him after the golden bird, and this is part of honoring his father, I see an opportunity to, to build up someone who's who's good, who will definitely have things to learn. Um, but that that is one of the nobler desires, to honor a parent. If his desire is an idolatrous one, like Nebuchadnezzar's, he will have to change it. And that change may require being broken. Treasure is treasure, but the greatest treasures of the heart really are the imperishable spiritual ones. Love, faith, joy, goodness. And in the end, those should be his true gold, whether they were his first desire or not. Third image, the two treacherous brothers. Honestly, this part of the fairy tale bothers me so much, I almost didn't want to talk about this fairy tale on the podcast. The betrayal of a close family member or kin is so despicable. It, it's it's hard for me to read about, and I think we're meant to feel that way. This motif, the two treacherous brothers who betray their youngest brother, comes up over and over in fairy tales. There there are a lot. The Water of Life is, is another fairy tale with this, this image, for example. In this tale, the brothers push him into a well. That's very common. In some versions, it's into a dry riverbed. Sometimes they'll, they'll just flat out kill him, grievously wound him. So you get the idea. But it's a betrayal, and they leave him for dead. The biblical reference for this motif is well known. There are brotherly betrayals all the way back to Cain and Abel and down to Judas Iscariot, betraying the Lord Jesus. Uh, but this story is the closest echo of the story of Joseph and his brothers. Jealous of their younger brother Joseph, the favorite son, the son of the beloved wife, and bearer of the coat of many colors, the ten oldest sons of Jacob throw Joseph down a dry cistern. And then afterwards, uh, they sell him into slavery in Egypt. Betrayal is a very bitter thing. David, the King David, captured the pain and sorrow of it in some of the Psalms, like Psalm 55. And I find it painful to read about. But because of the fall of Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve betrayed God by breaking his command. Betrayal is part of the story of our world. So if you're tackling a retelling of this fairy tale, how do you handle the treacherous brothers? As you develop deep and complex characters, create a larger and broader world, and thicken the plot, how does the Bible help you handle this bitter action? I see a couple of options, a couple of of ways to think about this. Because the Bible is the greatest story, you have the freedom to echo the story of Joseph. It goes from Genesis 37 to the end of the book. Joseph's brothers betray him, they sell him into slavery. And a lot of things happen. It's very, um, it's it's beautiful and it's it's complicated. But in the end, he forgives them completely. The family is reunited. The wound is healed. So I see very much a freedom to have the youngest brother forgive his brothers for there to be repentance and reconciliation. But there can be no reconciliation or restoration of relationship without that repentance. The brothers have to be sorry for what they've done. 
This would be my favorite way of resolving this, having everyone come together again and reconcile. But I know it, it is difficult to pull off a full repentance and not, not have it happen too quickly. It needs to be hard. It's, it's no easy thing to say sorry for something terrible you've done. And it's no easy thing to forgive. If it feels like your story skips too quickly to that or it's too easy, it will not ring true because betrayal is so bitter. I see that as a potential danger wanting to go towards forgiveness, but I know that I would struggle to not make that too quick or too easy. Secondly, I see a precedent in the story of Cain from Genesis 4 who murdered his brother Abel and never repented. So there's no forgiveness for, between Cain and Abel, I mean, because Abel's dead, and no reconciliation. But astonishingly, marvelously, God still shows Cain grace. He lets him live and he puts a mark on his forehead so that no one can kill him. It just strikes me as so curious because the sin is sin and, and Cain pays for it, but just that act of grace. So I see the opportunity in a fairy tale retelling to show these brothers grace of some kind and maybe make a way for a future repentance. Not right then. Last, the story of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed the Lord Jesus. So his betrayal is described in Matthew 26, Mark 14, Luke 22, and John 18. Judas betrayed the Lord Jesus by telling his location to the Pharisees, so they, they sent people to arrest him. And he did not mean to, but that plays a, a crucial role in salvation history because the Lord Jesus' death was the substitutionary atonement for our sins. So it worked out for good, but his, his action was evil. He regretted what he did, but he never fully repented before God and asked for forgiveness. He, he went and hung himself. As awful as it is, this also is part of reality. The traitor who never repents and is condemned. So those three, three ways of thinking about this, uh, the way of forgiveness and reconciliation, the way of a grace that comes even without repentance, and the way of condemnation. Last thing I'll say about this fairy tale, fairy tales will often be very fragmented. One episode of the story doesn't really relate to another. So I find in this one the fate of the fox so fascinating that he turns out to be the brother of the princess of the golden castle. A retelling could address that question as a starting point. What happened with that wicked witch who enchanted the fox? And how does this whole story of the tree, the golden bird, the horse with the golden mane, and the princess of the golden castle relate to that curse? Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please rate and review so that other people can find it too.